in the month of July, in, 19, in the year 64, a great fire broke out in the city of Rome, and the entire city was engulfed in flames, and hundreds of public buildings were burned to the ground, hundreds of acres were blackened in the city, and thousands of homes were destroyed, so that there were thousands of the inhabitants of the city left homeless. And um, history has uh, concluded that the, the emperor, Nero, set that fire in order that he might destroy the ramshackle buildings of Rome and give him room to erect some of the marble palaces and other monuments that he felt would establish his name in Roman history. It was during this time, of course, that uh, the story was born that Nero fiddled while Rome burned although it's since been uh, pretty conclusively proved that the violin wasn't invented at that time. Uh, what he played, it's, it's hard to tell. But it is pretty clear from uh, some of the contemporary historians that uh, the emperor was seen looking out over the city and rather enjoying the view while it was burning. And there were some who claimed that... Uh, when a fire, when part of the fire was put out in one part of the city, it would suddenly and mysteriously be relit again. So that uh, it, uh, the historians of that day seem to be almost unanimous in concluding that Nero did burn down the city of Rome. And the populace was incensed and were ready to revolt and overthrow him. So he quickly looked around for a... Uh, a scapegoat that he could put the blame for this fire on. And there was in the city of Rome a group of people that were just uh, uh, in the right situation to lend themselves to take the blame for this fire. They were called Christians. And they followed uh, a man named Christ who about whom strange things were said. And they themselves did very strange things. Rumors were flying all around Rome that uh, they were cannibals because they talked about getting together in their houses and drinking someone's blood and eating his body. And uh, they spoke about love feasts in which they greeted one another with a holy kiss and uh, and shared their inmost problems with each other and this soon became uh, enlarged into stories of wild sexual orgies that took place and so they were a people already under deep suspicion and when the emperor needed a scapegoat he uh, started the the rumor around Rome that the Christians had burned down the city now there were a lot of people that refused to believe that but there were some who did and in order to enforce it, the emperor began a very, very serious series of persecutions against the Christians. And it was during this time that uh, Christians were burned as torches uh, to light the gardens of Nero when he threw an outside outdoor party. They were dipped in tar and burned as living torches in his garden. They were tied to his chariot and dragged through the streets of Rome until they were dead. They were thrown to the lions and tied up in, in uh, leather bags and thrown into water until the bags 
squeezed together and squeezed them to death, and in a, and a hundred other delicate ways, the emperor sought to impress upon them the folly of being Christians. Now, it was during this time of the outbreak of the persecution of Christians in Rome that the Apostle Peter wrote his first letter. And he wrote it, uh, many, most scholars believe, from Rome. Two, the exiles, he says, are the strangers of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And thus we get this beautiful and wonderful letter that we call the first letter of Peter. You'll notice in the close of this letter that Peter says he wrote it from Babylon. And there are some who have said that he meant the literal Babylon on the Euphrates River. But uh, most scholars seem quite agreed that he was using the term that was common among the Christians of that century to refer to Rome. Because all the licentiousness and the idolatry and uh, the uh, evil of Babylon had now been transferred to the capital of the Roman Empire. And and Rome was called frequently among the Christians Babylon. And so it's very likely that the Apostle Peter wrote this letter from the city of Rome in about 67 A.D. And he wrote it to Christians, most of them Gentile Christians, who were scattered about in certain cities in the northeast province of what we now call Asia Minor, in the, uh, or Turkey. And uh, to them this letter came. Now they were being hounded and persecuted all through the emperor, empire because of Nero's uh, proclamation. And so the apostle wrote to encourage them in the face of their difficulties. And this then is one of the letters of the New Testament that is especially helpful to anybody that's going through some difficulty. If you're facing the problem of suffering of any kind, I would urge you to read First Peter. And uh, if you're wondering what God is, is doing in the world of our day, and what's going to happen in the face of all the tensions and pressures and possibilities of terror that await us in the future? This is an excellent letter to read, because it was written to Christians under similar circumstances. Now, Peter begins with the greatest fact in the life of any Christian, his relationship to Jesus Christ with the new birth. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy we have been born anew. That's the greatest thing that ever happens to anyone. When I was a boy, I remember hearing Christians give testimonies. And uh, very frequently, frequently they would say, The greatest thing that ever happened to me was the day that I met Jesus Christ. Well, I was a Christian, but I down deep in my heart, did not really believe that this was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It uh, seemed to me to be a rather minor incident in my life. I didn't have any great experience. I was only 10 years old when I came to know Jesus Christ. And uh, though it was a very precious thing to me, yet it didn't seem to me to be a very important thing. There were other decisions that I felt I was 
would have to make a little later on that seemed more important, like what kind of work was I going to do and who was I going to marry and uh, where would I live and a few things like this. But now as I look back across more than half a century, I can say that unquestionably, beyond the shadow of a doubt, far and away above every other decision I ever made, that decision I made as a lad ten years old is the greatest decision of my life. Everything has been related to that some way or another. Now, Paul, Peter goes on to point out here why this is true. He says there are three things about this decision that are extremely significant, which you can get there and no place else. One is a living hope. A living hope. What a word for this hopeless age. We have, says Peter, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. Did you know you had reservations in heaven already? Now, some people say that's pie in the sky by and by. That that's opium for the masses, you know, to keep us happy while we struggle along down here. This is what Karl Marx told the world. And I suppose it can be looked at that way in a sense, but yet when you look at the hopelessness that pervades our society today, and you see young people who ought to be filled with a sense of, of life and living, lying sometimes for hours like zombies, corpses in our public parks, because they have nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to live for. You can see what a living hope does. It activates us. It motivates us now. And this is the great thing about Christianity. You take away the hope of another world, another life, and you destroy the meaning of this life. So Peter begins there. But that isn't all. He says we not only have a living hope, but a present power. He goes on to speak about being kept by God's power, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. A present power. A power that sustains us, that grips us when we're in terror or anxiety or need and strengthens us and comes to us despite all the obstacles life throws at us. And third, a rejoicing love. For he says, without having seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. I hope all of you know what he's talking about here. That kind of quiet joy that fills the heart inside. Simply because you know Jesus Christ, that's all. Not because of anything he does for you, but because he is who he is. And he loves you, and you love him. Even though you can't see him, you love him. Now Peter goes on to show that all this has been predicted by the Old Testament prophets. This is not something dreamed up or imagined. It isn't something that is cooked up in somebody's uh, phantasmagorical uh, pot. It isn't, a, it isn't a fable, he says a little later on, but it is truth. It was predicted. 
and it was confirmed exactly as it was predicted. It occurred that way, and thus we can rest upon it. So in this way, he shows, he encourages us by the fact that we have this inner witness and this outer testimony. And that's the grounds upon which Christian faith always rests in any age or any time. Now, growing out of this, Peter goes on to show us that there have to be certain changes in our life as a result. If this is what we are, well, then what we do must in somehow relate to that. Or otherwise, it really hasn't happened to us. You see, we, all that he says and all that the New Testament continually says to us is, be what you are. That's all. Just be what you are. Don't be hypocrites. That's being something you're not. But be what you are. And there are three marks that he sets forth in this letter for these Christians and for us. First, he says, be holy. Now, what do you think when you hear that word holy? Do you think of someone who has been stewed in vinegar? Sour? Uh, so... Um, Oh, so uh, pious that uh, he's always mouthing uh, pious sayings and talking about religious things. Is this what holiness means to you? Well, obviously, you've missed the whole meaning of it. You know what the, how the Old Testament refers to holiness? It calls it the beauty of holiness. And there's something beautiful about a holy person. Because holiness means wholeness. This is a real person. To me, the ingredients of wholeness are basically, first, single-mindedness. Here's a person who is who has his eye on a goal, on a person whom he follows. And that person is so thoroughly and all-important to him that everything that doesn't relate to that person is not interested in. That's single-mindedness. He's dedicated. And uh, there's something attractive about that. Anytime you meet a Marine who takes pride in his outfit and you watch him walking down the street, you can see the kind of single-mindedness I'm talking about. He's proud that he's a Marine. And he walks like it. And he talks like it. And that's, there's that quality about a Christian who understands his Lord. He's holy in the sense that he's dedicated. And then he's at peace with himself. He's not struggling with anyone or with certainly not within himself. He's at rest. He's adjusted. He doesn't get upset when everything around him starts crumbling or falling apart. That's what holiness is. And then he's interested in you. He's outgoing. He's not always thinking about himself and his rights and his uh, concerns and his comfort, but he's thinking about yours and how you're doing. And they're the most attractive kind of people to be around. I love holy people. I wish all you were holy. (laughs) It'd be so much more fun coming to church. (laughs) And then Peter says, be fearful. Yes, he does. He says, and if you invoke as father him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. What does he mean? Be fearful. Well, he means have an honest respect for the kind of a being God is. Remember who you're dealing with. You're not dealing with another man who can be fooled by your actions or your attitudes, but you're dealing with one who knows you more thoroughly than you know yourself and who's no respecter of persons. You can't buy his favor. You can't trick him somehow into being uh, treating you differently than he treats anyone else. You can't become his favorite. You can't become uh, an inner favored circle that gets certain advantages from which others are shut out. God doesn't act that way. He's no respecter of persons. And if you begin to play fast and loose with him, the results that he says will happen will happen to you just as surely as to anyone else. And if you open up yourself in obedience to him and respond to him, what he says will happen to you just as surely as it ever happened to the Apostle Paul or Peter or anyone else. Well, that kind of a being knows us so well, it kind of frightens you, doesn't it? And that's what Peter means. Conduct yourself with fear, remembering that you're dealing with one you can't fool. Therefore, be honest, remembering that you were bought not with things that men use to buy things in the markets, but with something that no one else could have given, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And third, as a result of belonging to him, He says, be priests. This is the second chapter. And it begins with that word, you know, come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice. This, by the way, is the answer to the question that many people ask. Today, what did Jesus mean when he said to Peter, Peter, your name is Peter, and upon that rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we know that the word Peter means rock, and the Catholic Church tells us that Jesus meant that he was going to build his his church upon Peter. But Peter says no. He was there. He ought to know. He says that Jesus is the rock. And that every believer who comes to Christ is like a a stone built upon that rock. That great underlying rock upon which God is erecting the building called the church today. That Jesus is that rock. And we're built up upon him like stones upon the great rock. In order that we might be a priesthood, says Peter. In order to offer something unto God. Something God greatly desires and wants. What is it? What can you give God that he wants that he doesn't have? Think of that. What can you and I, just mere human beings in this great universe, give to the one who flung the worlds into space? Something he very much wants. What is it? Well, Peter tells us. 
He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what God wants. He wants you to talk about what he's done for you and to tell others what he's like to you. And when you do, you offer a sacrifice unto God that's like a sweet-smelling offering and a savor of worship unto him. Well, Peter goes on now to deal with the more practical aspects of life, and I must run through this quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this. But he deals with life as citizens. Here these people were living in the Roman Empire and under this persecution, and yet they had certain obligations. So in chapter 2, verse 11 and on, he deals with these obligations. He says, as citizens, subject yourself to the government and to the powers that be. And listen to this now. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, love God, honor the emperor. What emperor? Nero who drags Christians around behind his chariot and burns them as living torches in his garden. Honor the emperor. I think in these days when young people, even sometimes Christian young people, think they have the right to take the law into their own hands, disobey the powers that be, and do so in the name of of God, ought to read a passage like that and remember that it was of the very emperor that was causing the havoc among Christians that Peter wrote these words, honor the emperor. And then he went on about servants. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Don't uh, boycott them or uh, riot against them or demonstrate Not only, he says, to the kind and the gentle, but also to the overbearing. For one is approved, if mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. And then he reminds them of the example of the Lord Jesus. He says that's what he did. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. He committed himself unto the Lord. And then he moves from that into the home. He says, wives... Likewise, you wives, just as as the Lord uh, took the unjust treatment that was accorded to him, likewise, you wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, even though they're not always right. And likewise, you husbands, live considerately with your wives, even though they sometimes nag you and disturb you, bother you, bestow honor upon them. Just as you Christians are to honor this monstrous wretch that sits on the throne at Rome, so you husbands are to honor your wives. (laughs) Even though they're not as bad as Nero. Yet. (laughs) Well, that's drawing an extreme picture, perhaps. But you get the point. That's what he means. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit 
and uh, sympathy and love of the brethren, a tender heart and a humble mind. That's the mark of a Christian in society. Then comes this difficult passage about spirits in prison and baptism now saving you and all these things. Many have struggled over this passage. But the key to that whole passage in chapter 3 is verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the key. He did this in order that he might bring us to God. Christ underwent suffering. He came in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He did all this in order that he might accomplish the great end that he might bring us to God. Now this reminds Peter of the way the gospel was preached before times in Noah's day and how the spirit of Christ speaking through Noah preached to the people of his day in order that he might bring them to God but they refused and so the ark came in as a picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ I spoke of that this morning to carry them over the floods of judgment and bring them to God and baptism which is a symbol also a picture of the ark Uh, Relating to the ark, you see, now saves us just as the ark saved Noah. So baptism, not water baptism, he says so. It's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the baptism of the spirit, which puts us into the ark of safety, our Lord Jesus. It's that which now saves us as an appeal to God from a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you read the passage in that light, I think you'll have no difficulty with it. And so he concludes his matter of suffering, exhorting the Christians to remember that they're to walk in honesty and faithfulness to God, not living like the Gentiles do. And all of the biblical writers say this, that we're to no longer live like the Gentiles do, but uh, we're to be, we're to Return good for evil. That's the idea. And uh, not be concerned about our own satisfaction and our own rights. This is Mother's Day. And perhaps a story that relates to that might be in order. We're so concerned, aren't we, that we get what we've got coming. This is the spirit of our age. That we get our rights. That everything we've got coming, we receive. But this is not the spirit of a Christian. And we Christians must learn that and begin to operate on that level. Because until we start reacting like Christians, we have no testimony at all before the world. If we start insisting upon our rights, even in little ways, we cancel out what witness we have. You've perhaps read of the story of the boy who uh, got concerned about all the work he had to do around the house. So one morning at breakfast, he laid beside his mother's plate a little list of things. For mowing the lawn, a dollar. For cleaning the room, 50 cents. For uh, carrying out the garbage, 50 cents. For vacuuming the rug, 
50 cents, and several other things, and then he drew a total, put it down there, and laid the bill beside his mother's plate. And she read it, read it, didn't say anything. But the next morning at breakfast, he found a list beside his plate. It said, for washing your clothes, no charge. For uh, cooking your meals, no charge. For um, uh, taking care of uh, your room, no charge. And a list of other things. And then she drew a total and wrote underneath, no charge. Done out of love, she said. And she laid it beside his plate. And uh, that day, he did everything in the house without a word of complaint. Got the point. This is what a Christian is to do. He returns good for evil. And this letter of Peter is very clear about this to people who are undergoing real punishment, real persecution. Now, the last section deals with life in the body of Christ. It's a wonderfully helpful section. It starts with chapter 4, verse 7, where Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. And if that was applicable in his day, think what it is for today. Therefore, therefore, what's the first thing now? What if the Lord came next year? What if we are at the end of the age? All things, the end of all things at hand. What do you think is the first thing that ought to be said? Well, Peter says it. Keep sane and sober for prayer. And above all, hold unfailing your love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. And as each of you has received a gift, a spiritual gift, employ it for one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's his program for the end of the age. Doesn't look very impressive in the eyes of the world, is it? But it's tremendously impressive in heaven. The angels think this is tremendous. And this is what will accomplish the will of God. That in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then he speaks again about the problem of suffering and uh, the way to rejoice because we share Christ's sufferings, not to suffer as a wrongdoer, but to rejoice in the fact that God is at work. And then he speaks of a mutual ministry of the elders to the members and the members one to another. And he closes his letter, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. You ask anything better than that? To him is the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, those are wonderful words, aren't they, for people living in the close of an age? And let's take them to heart. And we stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer.
Thank you, our Father, for this look from the old first century to us in the 20th century. And we pray that these words, which were true then and are still equally true today, may find a response in our hearts, young and old alike. Lord, help us to remember that we are strangers and exiles here. This is not our home, even though we're temporarily assigned here on duty. Help us to be faithful to you and obedient to your word, responsive to your grace and to your love, until him whom we have not yet seen, but love with a full heart, shall welcome us and restore to us more than all we could ever have dreamed of above that which we think has been taken away. We ask in his name. Amen.